A blessed Lord's Day again to each and every one. Welcome to our English morning uh, service today. I am Pastor Genesis Stan, and of, on behalf of our church, we'd like to welcome you. And we also welcome those of you who are watching us online today. We praise God for this opportunity. And if you are a newcomer uh, with us, we pray that you would find a spiritual home here in CBCP. If you have any questions, feel free to approach us or or any of our deacons later, uh, you will see them as they will assist in our uh, Lord's Table, uh, Lord's table uh, in a while. Now, we are nearing in, our, in the end of our series of Esther entitled Invisible God, Invisible Hands. And today we will be looking at Esther chapter 8, From Groaning to Glory. Post Tenebras Lacks. After darkness, light. It is the rallying cry of the 16th century church reformers. And this motto refers to the rediscovery of biblical truth in a time of spiritual darkness. Light after dark is also a fitting description of Esther chapter 8. We are already in the climax of the story. Back in the first seven chapters of Esther, Things have been very dark for the Jewish people. Bad things happened and things got worse for Esther and Mordecai and the entire Jewish race. They were facing annihilation. But then something unexpected happened also. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, wanted to kill Mordecai immediately. And so he set up something to ask the king's permission to kill Mordecai the following day. That was we learned back then in chapter 6. But then chapter 8 teaches us and shows us things of many reversals. Things turn around unexpectedly, surprisingly, and immediately. And this is something that God invites us to know and learn and so that we can know who he is and how we can apply or how can we live our lives in light of this truth. Now here's the key lesson that I want us to focus today. And that is God is our God of great reversals who turns our groaning into glory. He turns our groaning into glory. And this God of great reversal is someone who gives his people a new day, a new decree, and a new destiny. And so let's begin. Let's look at Esther chapter 8 verses 1 to 2. On that same day, King Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. Again, chapter 8 is already the climax of the story, and here we see many reversals. And here is the first turnaround, the downfall of the proud, the downfall of the proud. Last week, we learned how Esther exposed Haman's wicked plan against her and against the Jewish people. And so what happened to Haman? Haman experienced losses in his life. And this is the first. He lost his life. Specifically, he lost his life. In chapter 7, that's the last part, in verses 9 to 10, it says, Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, 
Haman has set up a sharpened pole and stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale, Mord- then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai and the king's un- anger subsided. The king was so angry because he discovered that Haman betrayed him and his trust and he manipulated the king. And so he was so angry and ordered for Haman to be impaled. You see, Haman died a humiliating and horrible death. Initially, it was meant to kill Mordecai, but this turn of events is really surprising, and so Haman was the one who ended up as a human barbecue. And so, not only he lost his life, he also lost his riches and possessions. It says here, the king gave the property of Haman to Queen Esther, and then Queen Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. You see, that's the practice during the ancient times. When you betray the king, you not only lose your life, you lose everything. All your property will be turned over to the king. And so the king then turned over uh, this to Esther, and Esther turned over this to Mordecai. And this is another reversal, because remember back then in, in the previous chapter, um, Haman was boasting about this great wealth and property and riches with his friends and wife, and now that great wealth has been lost. And not only that, Haman lost his power and authority. The king took off the signet ring which he had taken back from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. The signet ring is something that is used to, uh, to put an imprint in a wax or a clay so that it acts a, as a signature authorizing someone to authenticate or sign a document on behalf of a greater person, on behalf of the owner of the ring. So when the king gave Mordecai the signet ring, he's telling Mordecai, you can do whatever, you can issue a decree, however you want it, and you will, and it's as if I am the one who signed it. And so this is the power and authority that Haman lost, and now turn over to Mordecai. Now the loss of one person, the loss of Haman, is the gain of another person, that's Mordecai. And that is now the distinction of God's people, particularly Mordecai. Again, we've read this verse. In the previous, in this one, we saw Haman lost his life. He lost his riches and possessions. He lost his power and authority. But then on the other end, Mordecai received life. Instead of him being killed, he received honor. Instead of being humiliated and executed, Mordecai ended up being praised and honored. Mordecai also received riches and possessions. Mordecai ended up handling all of Haman's property. And then Mordecai also received authority. He received the signet ring from the king. And so this is something that is a great reversal in the story. And now this is also, it shows us that this reversal in position is something that is not a coincidence. This is something that is not just out of the ordinary. Just think about it. Is this reversal luck? Is it just a uh, good fate or coincidence? I don't think so. The Bible tells us that it is God who is at work. Yes, God is at work because he is the God of great reversals who turns our groaning into glory. Nonetheless, here in Esther, we see the theme of God's hiddenness behind the scene. But nonetheless, it is he who is at work. 
Now here is something that I want to highlight. It says here in verse one, the first four words, on that same day, on that same day. It took only one day for this great reversal to happen. And this is something significant. You see, one day, in just one day, the proud was brought down and the oppressed was lifted up. In just one day, Haman's evil plan backfired against him and everything he wanted reversed. Haman lost his possessions, he lost his life, he lost his authority, but then Mordecai received everything, the exact opposite of what Haman lost. In one day, Esther and Mordecai received their life, riches, possessions, power, and authority. Again, think about this. Who orchestrated these things? Is it, King, is it Queen Esther? Is it Mordecai? Is it King Xerxes? Of course, they played part in the role, but nonetheless, it is God himself, the invisible God working behind the scene was the one who is at work. And so here, Esther chapter eight shows us that one day can make a lot of difference in your life. God can turn around and make a significant event in our lives to turn around your story. Just think about those things that happen in your life. Think of that one day that reversed your situation. What is that one decision or one experience that you encountered that radically changed the course of your life? One day is very important. June 4, 1942. The Battle of Midway became the turning point in the Pacific War. Six months before the Battle of Midway, the Japanese Imperial Army attacked Pearl Harbor. So they destroyed a lot of US ships in that island. But then six months after, the Japanese Army attacked Midway and they planned to trap and destroy what remained of the American Navy. And if you compare the forces of the Japanese and the American forces, here's uh, what it looks like. So, yung sa red, nasa left, the Japanese army have four carriers, and this is very significant because the aircraft carriers are massive ships that carries plane, para silang floating airport. So the more carriers, the better. They have those battleships and a lot of planes and 15 submarines. And compare that to the forces of the Americans, they only have three carriers. They have no more battleships kasi naubos dun sa Pearl Harbor eh six months before, and they have these carriers, aircraft from the carriers and land-based aircraft, and they have eight submarines. So they are outnumbered basically two to one. But by God's providence, the US code breakers were able to determine the date and the plan of the attack. And so they were able to set up their own ambush against the Japanese forces. And what happened in the Battle of Midway? I encourage you to watch the movie or the documentary para mas ma-appreciate niyo siya. But this is something that happened. In less than 12 hours, the American forces defeated the Japanese fleet. In a single battle, all of the four carriers were destroyed. 
and therefore all the planes, they have no more landing places, and so they just crash into the sea. And so the American forces destroyed 80 to 90% of the Japanese Air Force, and more than 3,000 sailors and crewmen destroyed. And all it took is one day, technically it's less than a day, in just uh, in less than 12 hours. Before this event, Japan was winning the war in the Pacific, but this epic battle at Midway, is, it changed the face of the war and it turned around the course of history. One day is very important. And in our lives, God can use also one day to turn around that, that thing that we are, that the course that we are going to. And so again, think about that one day in your life that changed the course of your story. Now let's go back to Haman. Haman's downfall is both a warning and encouragement to us. First, it is a warning to the wicked and arrogant. One day God will punish the wicked and he will bring down the proud. As the psalmist tells us in Psalm 9, the Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. This is the promise of God. The wicked are plotting, they're setting up ambush, but eventually what their plan will backfire to them. They will be ensnared by their own wickedness. The Lord says, see, I am your enemy, you arrogant one, says the Lord. The Lord of heaven's army, your day of reckoning has arrived, the day when I will punish you. Dear friends, reflect on your life. This verse tells us that God will punish the wicked, that God will deal with his enemies. Now the question for us is this, are you on God's side or are you God's enemy? Is God our ally or is God against us? Are you proud or do you humble yourself before the Lord? If you say, I don't need God, I am my own master, I live by my own rules, then I'm sorry to say this, God is not on your side. If you say, I am a Christian, I believe in God, but functionally, you're living for yourself, you're building your own kingdom, you go your own way, you even follow your own rules, then I'm sorry to say this, you are not on God's side. So this is a warning for all of us and be warned of what happened to Haman. Now also, Haman's downfall is an encouragement for those who suffer injustice. One day, God will vindicate those who are oppressed and, though, and he will give justice to those who suffer injustice. And that brings us to the second part of our text, a new decree in verses three to 14. Things started to look good for Esther and Mordecai, but the battle is not yet over. Yes, Haman is now dead, but the Jewish people still face the risk, that danger, because their death sentence is still there. And so, they are not yet safe. But here in the next part of the story, reverse the situation of his people. How? Here's what happened. First, Esther showed wisdom and discernment. West, um, then Esther went again before the king and falling down at his feet, begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman, the Agagite, against the Jews. Again, the king held out a golden scepter to Esther and she rose and stood before him. Esther once more risked her life to ask 
for the king's favor. But in here, in God's providence, as Esther did this, she again showed wisdom and discernment in how she approached the king. And she said, if it pleases the king, if I have found favor in him, if he thinks it is right and if I am pleasing to him, then let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, who ordered that Jews throughout the, all of the king's provinces should be destroyed. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed. You see, Esther did not presume. Esther did not make a demand on the king to act on her behalf. Instead, she humbly appealed. She requested, if it pleases the king, if I have found favor, may I request this new decree to stop the initial one. And what's the result of that? By God's providence, the king decided on behalf of Esther King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai, I have given Esther the property of Haman, and she has been impaled on the pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. That, now, this is the, what the king said. Now you, both of you, go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want, and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. And so the king gave favor to Esther and Mordecai and ordered both of them. The you here is in plural, and he ordered both Esther and Mordecai, do whatever you want. Put a decree out there, but remember, the initial one cannot be revoked. So it's up to you how to solve the problem. But in God's providence, Queen Esther again um, and Mordecai worked together, and here is what happened in the following verse, verses nine to 10. Mordecai's directive. So on June 25, the king's secretaries were summoned and the decree was written exactly as Mordecai dictated. It was sent to the Jews, to the highest officers, the governors and the nobles of all the 127 provinces in stretching from India to Ethiopia. The decree was written in scripts and languages of all the peoples in the empire, including that of the Jews. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring, and Mordecai sent the dispatch by swift messengers and rode fast horses, especially bred for the king's service. Mordecai drafted the new order, and the narrator shows us actually a parallel between the original one and the new decree. Just look at the orange, uh, can we show the slide please? Look at the orange uh, words here on June 25, exactly as Mordecai dictated, written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring, then swift messengers. This actually parallels the initial decree. Let's look at this initial decree from Haman. There's that date, written exactly as Haman dictated, written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring, sent by swift messengers. So the narrator is trying to show us almost the exact same words to emphasize the reversal of the previous one. And what else? What is included in this new decree? It says that Mordecai drafted this two months after. This what? Uh, the original one was April 17, but the, the new decree is June 25. So the previous chapters happened in, within those two months. And so Mordecai was very, uh, this new decree that Mordecai released is about two months after Haman 
wrote the first one, and it, it's about eight to nine months before the scheduled genocide. And what is, and what is it in that decree that's included? So let's continue. The king's decree gave the Jews the authority to unite, defend their lives. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, annihilate everyone, anyone of nationality in the province who might attack them or their children or their wives, and to take the property of their enemies. And the day chosen for this event throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes was March 7 of next year. This new decree actually helped the Jews in three ways. First, it gave them the right to assemble. It gave them the authority to unite. And the second one, it gave them the right to defend themselves. That's the emphasis there, self-defense, not aggression, not uh, initiating uh, violence, but self-defense. And also, it gave them the right to take plunder, to get the property of their enemies. But it's interesting that in chapter 9, as we will learn next time, the Jews chose not to use this right to take plunder. Let me show you these verses. The Jews killed their enemies, and it was recorded three times, but three times also it says, but they did not take any plunder. But they did not, they took no plunder, they did not take any plunder. The Jews still showed kindness to their enemies. Again, when will this take effect? This will take effect on March 7 of next year. And that is the exact day of the date that Haman wanted to kill the Jews. Now let's go to a controversial passage in a difficult one here in the story. Because if you look at the more literal, literal translation in the original language also, it says here, and it's quite difficult to, to understand it says here, in them the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and defend their lives. Now listen to this. To destroy, to kill, to annihilate the entire army of people or province which might attack them, including women and children, and to plunder their spoil. This is a very difficult passage. And you would ask, Pastor, why is that? Why is it, is it, isn't it too harsh, too inhumane, too cruel? Well, let me give you three points to answer this question. Well, number one, the writer is just echoing the words, the original words of Haman. In the, in the verse at the bottom, this is the original. It was Haman who initially demanded the killing of the women and children. It says here, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children in one day. It was Haman who first dictated that. And so here, Mordecai is just reflecting that reality. And again, the author is just trying to reverse, emphasize that situation of reversal. And so he used the exact words to destroy, kill, annihilate, including women and children. So the author used the exact words to reverse the initial decree. And again, it's a literary technique to, in, to emphasize reversal. And then the second, the emphasis of Mordecai's decree is not aggression, but self-defense. It is to defend themselves against those enemies who wanted to kill them, who wanted to harm, to harm them. And again, the third point is the Jews did not take any plunder. 
And now, before that, let me go back to the second, self-defense versus aggression. Again, if we read chapter nine, we will see that the Jews killed the men and there were no records of killing the women and the children. The men that they killed are those groups who attacked them first. Now, going to the third point, again, the Jews did not take any plunder. This is significant because you know why? Again, the Jews showed kindness to the enemies. Remember, actually in chapter nine, they killed the men, those groups who attacked them. Technically, the king gave them the right to take the plunder, to take the properties of these men. So what will happen to the children? If they killed the men already, and if they take the property and the possessions, what will happen to the women and children? They will live out there in the streets. They will have no place to stay. But the Jewish people did not take any plunder. It means that the women and the children who were bereaved of their maybe fathers or brothers because they hated the Jews, they tried to attack them and they were killed. These women and children still had the property, houses to live on. And that was the kindness that the Jews showed also to their enemies. Now let's continue. A copy of this decree was issued to the law as, as law in every province and proclaimed to all people so that the Jews would be ready to take revenge on their enemies on the appointed day. So urged on by the king's command, the messengers rode out swiftly on fast horses, bred for the king's service. The same decree was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Again, Mordecai's decree was disseminated immediately throughout the empire. And again, if we compare the two verses, it reflects almost the exact same words. But note that Haman's decree was then sent by swift messengers, but for Mordecai, it's quite special. It was sent by fast horses, primarily designed or bred for the king's service. And so in our words today, it's like sending a first class, sending the message by first class courier. Now, why is this sense of urgency? Why is this sense of immediacy? First, Mordecai wants to bring comfort to the people. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declare a public festival and holiday. Again, the theme here in this verse is joy and celebration, and it is also a prominent theme in this passage. You see, when the first decree came about, notice these verses. Again, there's comparison between the two verses. When the first decree came from Haman, there was great mourning. There was weeping and wailing. People are crying in sackcloth and ashes. But then the new decree came from Mordecai and there they experienced joy and celebration and gladness and a sense of victory. And that is something that they experience. Now in the literal translation, it says here in verse 16, for the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. The Jews were living in darkness back then, but God turned around and reversed the situation. And now they're living in the light. Light has come, dawn has arrived. Their groaning has turned into glory. Now, what about the non-Jews? The non-Jews actually experienced from confusion to contempt and then to celebration and conversion. 
again, this is a reversal of what happened. In the first decree, all of the entire city, the, Susa, uh, the city of Susa fell into confusion. That is what it says in verse, chapter 3, verse 15. Susa fell into confusion. And then, here in the new decree, it says Susa celebrated with the new decree. So the Jews, they knew that the first decree was so unjust, but now they understood the justice of the new decree from Mordecai. The Jews had mixed reactions. There's joy and fear, there's celebration and concern, but then it did not end there. There's also conversion. Many converted to become Jews as well. Before the people of Susa hated and casted out the Jews because they were set to, to die, now they honored them and embraced them. Now think about it, when they honored and embraced the Jews, the death sentence has not been, the death sentence is still there. But then there's that decree, so they have more confidence in a way now. They know that the Jews will win in the end, so it's better to, if you can beat them, let's just join them. And so this is what happened. We don't know precisely what becoming a Jew in Esther's time meant. Did they, or did the men back then, got circumcised? The text did not say that. But more so, some Bible scholar says it's more likely a political conversion rather than a heart change. We don't know. But nonetheless, the Jews were now honored, celebrated. It is no longer shameful to be a Jew. It is no longer something that you need to keep secret. Hindi mo na kailangan itago. But it is something to to be proud of, to, and it is no longer dangerous actually to be part of God's covenant people. No longer shameful, no longer dangerous, but it is already a badge of honor, something to be grateful for. And now, how could you explain all these changes? What made this thing possible? It's all about God. It's not about God's people. It's not about Esther or Mordecai or even the king. It is the God of great reversals. You see, God may be hidden, but he is not absent. He is the one who is at work, and he reverses positions, situations, and he reverses people's perception about you. He reverses people's perception, or, or, or he, he is the one who reverses our situation, our status. What God did then is the same thing that God could do to us. Again, that is the message of the gospel. We were condemned to die, but Christ came to save us, and so he lifted us up from that pit of destruction. Now as we close, let me summarize and give these few points. First, God is in control, so do not fear. God is in control, do not fear. Rest and rejoice in God's power sovereignty. You see, God was in control when Esther lost his parents and we, when Esther was adopted by Mordecai. God was in control when the king took Esther to the harem and eventually became queen. God was in control when Haman asked the king to annihilate the Jews. And God was in control when Haman also set up the sharpened pole for Mordecai. And here we see God in control when he reversed the situation. Yes, bad things happened. 
things got worse, and then more unexpected things happened. But eventually, God showed himself in control when he reversed the situation. Where are you right now? If you are in that place of blessing and favor, praise God for that, we celebrate with you. But for those of us here, again, the question is, where are you right now? Are you in the dark? Are you grieving because of your loss? Are you in despair or worried because you don't know what will happen tomorrow? Are you disappointed or confused or you don't know what to do? Where are you? I hope and pray that if, if that is your situation, I hope and pray that you would hold on. I pray that you will find hope in the Lord because he is in control. Remember, God is the God who reversed a situation. The hopeless people of Israel, he reversed his situation and gave them hope in the midst of that darkness. He gave them light and turned their groaning into glory. So do not fear tomorrow. Do not fear what will happen next. Do not worry about your health, your finances, your cares, your family. There's a beautiful passage in Romans. It says there that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he who gave us his son, how much more God is willing to give us all things, including him. The greatest gift that we could ever receive is Christ our Lord and all other things are lesser ones. If God was able to give us the greatest gift, how much more could he give us those lesser things to his beloved children? So therefore, do not worry. God is in control. Do not fear. And next, God takes care of his people. So do not worry. Rest and rejoice in God's goodness and faithfulness. Haman was determined to kill the Jews, but God showed him that he is more than able to care for his people. God prepared Esther and Mordecai at the proper place at the proper time, and he revealed his plan at that perfect moment. Now think about it, and I want you to look at this chart. When God saved the Jews at the time of Esther, it included actually the family of Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and the, Jewish, the other Jewish people. Probably Ezra back then was a teenager or already an adult because when he returned to the exile, uh, from the, when he returned to Jerusalem from the exile, he was already old. At that time, maybe Nehemiah is a toddler or maybe he's about to be born or maybe a young child, but, but eventually he will grow up to serve the king of Persia. So Rabobo, we don't know he's alive that time, but the point is God saved the families of these people, his covenant people. Why? Because God has great plans for them. 20 to 30 years down the road, Ezra will become God's instrument to bring about spiritual revival to the people of Israel back then who will go there to Jerusalem. That's part of God's plan. And for Nehemiah, he will stay behind in Persia and he will rise up to become the king's cupbearer. But then God has a plan for him and Nehemiah will be the one to travel back to Jerusalem 
to build the walls of that city. And for Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel will be the one to continue the line of the Messiah, and he will be part also of the exile who will return back to Jerusalem. And Zerubbabel will eventually become the great-grandfather of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the point? God can take care of his people. God will take care of his people because he has his plans. He has his purpose beyond our own perspective, beyond our own lifetime. And so church, this is an encouragement to us. Don't worry. God will take care of you. God will take care of me. The other night, I was talking with my wife about this situation. She says, you know, honey, yeah, life is hard. No, life is difficult. A lot of challenges physically, emotionally, some family decisions and transitions. But are you worried? And so we were sharing, oh, this is my worry. I'm rated this out of 10. This is my score. How about you, this one? But, none, but then we concluded. But we know we, we praise God for the lesson of Esther because that providence showed us God is in control and God will take care of his people. We may not know what will happen tomorrow, but God is there. And so I pray that all of us, as we come together, let us embrace this truth and reality and live in the light of that truth. And finally, God will turn things around on that day. So don't despair, rest and rejoice for God's wisdom and timing. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ did a great reversal already when he died on the cross. We were heading towards death, but Christ stepped in to save us from our sins. His perfect sinless life and death and resurrection gave us a new day. He gave us a new decree. He gave us a new destiny. And Christ's sacrifice reversed our position and situation. Instead of having eternal death, he gave us eternal life and we became children of God. Now one day Christ will return to completely turn things around. He will come in greater glory, greater than that of Mordecai. He will be a victorious king who will rule and reign over all creation once and for all. He will return. And what will happen on that day? That will be a day of judgment and vindication. And two things will happen. On that day, there will be both tears of anguish and tears of joy. God will destroy the wicked and lift up the humble and reward the faithful. God will bring down the proud and he will exalt his people. Now as we close, let's listen to the prophet Isaiah and let these words of God embrace us and, and plant deep in our hearts. Listen to what the Lord says. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Human pride will be humbled and human arrogance will be brought down and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. On that day, the Lord will punish the gods in the heavens and the proud rulers of the nations of the earth. In Jerusalem, the Lord's heaven's army will spread a wonderful feast for all the peoples of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear and well-aged wine and choice meat. There will, he will remove the cloud of gloom and shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow death forever. The Lord sovereign will wipe away all tears. He will forever remove all insults and mockery against his land and his people. The Lord has spoken. God will vindicate. God will restore. God will reward. 
On that day, the people will proclaim, this is our God, we trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings for the Lord's hand of blessing will rest on Jerusalem, that is God's people, but on Moab, God's enemies, he will crush. It will be like straw trampled down and left to rot. God will punish or God will push the Moab's people as a swimmer pushes down water with his hands. He will end their pride and all their evil works. The high walls of Moab will be demolished. They will be brought down to the ground, down in the dust. Friends, the question is, are you on God's side or are you God's enemies? It's never too late. We know how it ends. God wins in the end. And while we wait, God is just waiting for us and he is extending that invitation to surrender our life to him. Will you let him be your king and your Lord and your master? Will you let him rule in your heart? Will you make a decision today? Remember, one day will make a difference. Maybe for you, that one day will be today. I hope and pray that you open your heart to God. What will be your choice? Remember, God is a God of great reversal who turns our groaning into glory. Let us rest and rejoice in God's power and sovereignty. Rest and rejoice in God's goodness and faithfulness. Rest and rejoice in God's wisdom and timing. At this point, let us reflect on the things that we've learned and think about these questions and invite God to speak to us as we reflect. What is God inviting you to do? How can you rest and rejoice in him? What did you learn about God and how is the story of Haman's downfall both a warning and encouragement to us? Let's open our hearts to the Lord and let's give our life to him. Mm-hmm.